0: Welcome to The Bounce Podcast. I am Bob Lapine. I am a board member with the Great Commission Collective. GCC is the sponsor of this podcast. And I'm also the teaching pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is the start of season two for The Bounce Podcast. So those of you who were with us during season one, thank you for joining us. I hope you are passing the word along to other pastors and church leaders who could benefit from these conversations. Our goal at this podcast is to help pastors be resilient. We want to tackle the topics of the day. We want to talk about how you function in pastoral ministry and help you with that. And of course, that's a part of our goal at the Great Commission Collective. GCC is all about planting churches and strengthening leaders. You can find out more about the Great Commission Collective when you go to our website, which is gccollective.org. We are starting off season two with someone who I appreciate very much. I've I've read uh, much of what he has written and uh, always enjoy having a conversation with him. Trevin Wax is president of research and resource development at the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a visiting professor at Cedarville University. By the way, at the Great Commission Collective, we have an alliance with Cedarville and can provide some scholarship help for GCC churches and church members who want to go to Cedarville. There's more information about that in the show notes today. Trevin blogs regularly. He has written for the Washington Post, Religion News Services, World Magazine, Christianity Today. He's been named as one of 33 millennials shaping the next generation of evangelicals, and he has just released a book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, and I thought that's what we need to have a conversation about. So that's what Trevin and I spent uh, a little more than a half an hour talking about. Trevin, thanks for being here. I, I, I want to start off just by asking about the the meeting with the publishers where you or somebody said let's call the book the thrill of orthodoxy and everybody looked and said um really the thrill of orthodoxy that's what we're going to call this book thrill and orthodoxy aren't two words that typically get used in the same sentence
1: that is true and what you know what's fascinating bob is that out of the different publishers we talked to none of them pushed back on that title they all liked the fact that because you don't typically associate those two words together, there's something about it that catches the eye and catches the attention. And which was was part of the point. You know, we we always think of orthodoxy as a a dry and dense list of doctrines and rarely associate the word thrill with it. But the publishers immediately recognized I was trying to do something, you know, that Dorothy Sayers did when she talked about how the dogma is the drama of Christianity. And, you know, and this is it goes back to to gk chesterton writing a book called orthodoxy and lewis doing mere christianity you know that i was wanting to capture the best of that that tradition of of showing the beauty of christian faith in a way that would be fresh and exciting i'm sure the publishers probably scratched their heads but they 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 never pushed back on the title from the beginning that was the title and that's what it it wound up being in the end
0: well and of course the the book is speaking into a culture where Orthodoxy has moved down the list in terms of evangelical priorities. In fact, I was preaching recently on John 17, where Jesus says, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And I was saying truth is not what most people are looking for as the validation of your faith. Today, we live in a culture where orthopraxy is more valued than orthodoxy. And to our detriment, don't you think yeah, and I'm not even sure i would I would call it
1: orthopraxy it's It's almost a more of a therapeutic version of orthopraxy. It's the question of what works, what works for me, what makes my life better, what helps me improve myself or be more moral or whatever it might be, and what gives me peace, helps me sleep better, <laughs> you know, like all like we, we we tend to think of what works and the, you know we i mentioned cs lewis a minute ago but this isn't something that's new it's something that's been coming for quite a while I, I was recently in the uk and i did a conference on cs lewis in in leeds which is in northern england and in doing the research for that talk i discovered that back in the 1940s lewis said that when he would go around and do apologetics he said it was very difficult to move people even back then Away from the question of what works, of what societal benefit is Christianity, to the question of truth. What is true? Is Christianity true? I mean, at the end of the day, Lewis said, you've got to, I, I, I have to constantly be pulling people back to this question of if it's true. Because if it's true, you got to believe it, whether it works for you or not. You know, but uh, if it works, that could be a good starting point for a conversation. But that's not the end point. You know, that's something I'm trying to do in this book to show how orthodoxy and orthopraxy come together and how important they are, how we've got to hold them together. But to move us away from simply asking the question, what works? What's most practical to the bigger question of what's true? What's good? What's beautiful? And showing how Christianity answers that deeper longing before we get into the question of, How does this apply to my life?
0: Well, and when I'm sitting down with 20-somethings or 30-somethings today, and we're talking about what is true, what they gravitate toward is the truth of love, goodness, niceness, caring about other people. All of these are our values. They don't really care that much what you think about the doctrine of the Trinity or what you think about the doctrine of Scripture, or what you think about justification by faith. In fact, they would have much more margin in their lives for somebody who is kind toward other people, but who has a wrong view of Scripture than somebody who has a right view of Scripture and is a little irascible. Now, I'm not defending irascibility here. You know, I'm not saying we should—it doesn't matter how we live out our faith. But there's such a minimization of— these theological truths in the minds of many 20 and 30. In fact, I would say there's a rejection of a lot of evangelical Christianity because of our emphasis on these truths. And people are saying, you're emphasizing truth, but you're not living the way I think you should be living. Therefore, I'm going to go to a nicer church.
1: I would want to say it's a, it's a problem when our, our actions aren't lining up with our theology, with our doctrine affirmations, with our statements. And it, it is something that, yeah, I mean, deserves to be critiqued. I think it, part of us should hear that critique and should say, I mean, we we all know theological eggheads who give doctrine a bad name, you know, like who are, who will travel across the country to argue and debate the intricacies of how, you know, what the order of salvation is. Or, the intricacies of Christology, but wouldn't walk across the street to actually share or show the love of Jesus with someone, so i I want to you know acknowledge, yeah, that's a problem, that is a problem here's the 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 flip side of that problem. the idea though that you know at the end of the day it's just being nice and loving that matters, uh being Jesus to people, okay, but unless you actually do some theological work there, then you're just going to take whatever the world's definition of niceness of love. Or the world's vision of Jesus. And you're going to unintentionally, you're going to fill those concepts of love and grace and mercy and whatnot with the world's definitions. Generally speaking, it's going to be an overly sentimentalized understanding of what love is. What I'm saying is if you want to really love like Jesus calls you to love, if you want to really love like the Bible says to love, this sort of self sacrificial understanding of love a love that hurts. You know, if you want to be Jesus to the world. And, you know, people say they want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And 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 I often say that, well, then don't forget what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus, right? Like If you want that kind of love, that's really going to challenge the world, that's going to go way deeper, way deeper than any vision of love that the world is going to give you, then you've got to do theology. You know, you've got, you've got to, to wrestle with doctrine. You've got to let the Bible define what that kind of love and service and suffering looks like. And so so we're back right again. We're back to theology. It's inescapable. The question isn't, will you care about theology? The question is, will you do theology in a way that is faithful to the great tradition of the Christian church's understanding of how we should do theology, that's faithful to the Scriptures. That that's faithful to the gospel as, as it's been delivered to us. That's the question. Are you going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? But you're going to be a theologian if you're talking about God and seeking to live in the way that he's
0: called us to. So I'm guessing we're talking to many pastors today who are saying, amen, I want to do theology. I love theology. In fact, I love preaching and getting into the the deep roots of all of this, yet it seems like I've got people whose eyes are glazing over or they're saying, pastor, give me, give me something that I can use today. So help a pastor know how he can be true to what you've just called us to and still make that connect better with the people he's talking to. I think we should,
1: as pastors and preachers, we should be always afraid of boring people with the Bible and with God. I mean, I think it was J.I. Packer who who talked about how one of the greatest sins that a preacher can do is to bore someone with the Bible. And there is a way of of, of preaching in a way that's very doctrinal, very theological, and yet doesn't move the heart, doesn't actually lead to, to to action. So that is a problem. What I'm constantly telling pastors and preachers, there, there's, there's a couple of things we, we've got to remember if we really want people to be awakened to the thrill of orthodoxy. The first is you got to figure out where the drama is. And the drama is always in conflict. Any great storyteller will tell you drama comes from conflict. So you got to ask yourself about every text you're preaching. Where does this rub up against what the world says? So that there's an edge to your preaching. A couple months ago, I preached at chapel at Cedarville University. I did two 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 messages on the Lord's Prayer, uh, two days in a row. And you know, and I was I was looking for like as I was working on the exposition of that, I'd read all these commentaries. I you know I pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. I mean, I feel like, like this is I know this passage of scripture, but when I was getting there in the in the in the sermon prep time, I was thinking to myself, though, there's a way for me to just kind of walk through the theology of this prayer, and that's not enough. I need to be asking myself the question of every line of this prayer, where's the edge? Like, what does it mean to pray, hallowed be thy name in a world that is constantly wanting to telling you, you should hallow your own name, you know, or praying for God's kingdom to come in a world where your own personal kingdom agenda is going to be defining or, or what it means to pray our father in heaven in a very individualistic world, for example, that only thinks of me and my personal need, like that edge where, you, where, where you're constantly saying, look, the world says this, but I say to you this, Jesus says to you that that edge is what causes people to lean in. So as I tell people, yeah, get into theology for sure, but don't lose the edge of where that theology is going to run into conflict because that's where the drama, that's where the drama in the narrative actually is. So, so one is the edge and the other is the encounter with God at the end of the day when we preach and teach. We're going to preach on the Trinity, and God is going to be the subject. By all means, we ought to find connection points to our life. But at the end of the day, we want people to actually know and meet this God that we're preaching about, like to encounter Him, to not just know about Him, but to know Him. So, if there's never a point in our preaching or teaching where it's like we want to put down the pen and we just want to like be in awe of of Him, that's ultimately what we're going for. You know, there's a there's a a, a great story told by one of the uh, uh, former editors at. Um, Worked for a long time at Christianity Today, and I, I included this story in Gospel center Teaching, uh, a book that I did a few years ago. But uh, he he talks about doing a Bible study with these Laotian refugees who were coming to the church and they were wanting to join the church. Many of them weren't believers yet, and and so he's walking through the Gospel of Mark with them, and they get to Mark chapter four, and you know the story: Jesus calms the storm, and immediately this guy begins applying that. Story to the storms of your own life, you know, like what are the tribulations? And look, and that is there is an application there. I totally meant, but it, but kind of rushing from the story to the application. And he said, everyone just looked really strangely at him during this. Uh, these Laotian refugees were like, wait, are you saying that with a word? Jesus stopped the wind and the waves, and of course, of course, he's thinking, well, they're getting hung up on the miracle part of it, and he's like, well. Yeah, but you know, the point of the story is you've got to get to, you know, is what are the, the storms of your life and whatnot? And just this puzzled silence in the room until finally one of them raises their hand and says, wow, you're telling me, I mean, if, if Jesus can, with a word, calm the wind and the waves, he must be a very powerful man. And the whole room erupted in, in in the Laotian language, they're all chattering away. And and at that moment, the teacher says, I realized they got the point of that story better than I did. Because what how does that story end? It doesn't end with the disciples talking about the storms in their own life. It talks about them saying, Who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, here's the point. Like eventually, yes, if you trust that Jesus is that powerful, when the storms of life come, yeah, you're gonna, I mean, there's Perfectly fine application there. So if any pastors listen to this, and that's how you apply that text, you're perfectly right to do so. But don't short circuit that moment of awe and wonder that the passage itself is intending to evoke. That's what we ultimately, that's where we want to get people.
0: Don't uh, minimize the awe that we should be feeling by the fact that Jesus can stand up and say, peace, be still, and the waves stop. I mean, we're, we're, we're so used to that that there's no thrill left in that orthodoxy, right? And let's recapture that. You encounter a Jesus
1: that powerful, and when the storms of life come, you will trust him with through the storms of life. But if you jump too fast, you just you just miss the thrill and the wonder and the awe.
0: This is this is a little different application of the same principle, but I I I think it fits. I remember hearing Tim Keller share the story about early in his days at Redeemer in New York where at the end of his sermons, he would invite people to come down and do a Q&A time after the sermon. And he said in New York, they were anxious to do that. And he learned a lot about how to preach from the questions and answers that came. And he said one Sunday, a, a person in the crowd said, I've been coming here the last three or four weeks and I'm thinking maybe I would want to join the church. She said, I'm a lesbian. I'm living with my lesbian partner. I'm wondering, would I have to stop that if i were to join the church and of course everybody spins and looks at tim with okay what are you going to say to this in manhattan mr preacher man i'm on the edge of my seat thinking if i was in that moment what would i say and tim said i think you're asking the wrong question and she said what do you mean she said well the question you need to be asking is do you believe jesus is who we've been saying he is if you don't you shouldn't join a church if you do, that's going to have implications over every aspect of your life, your sexuality, your finances, how you spend your time, all of it. But if you believe he is who he says he is, who we say he is, then you're stuck with those implications and you're going to have to deal with those implications. Of course, Tim Keller, it's a brilliant answer, but it's a brilliant answer because it says, let's go back to what's true. To your point, what we've been talking about, rather than getting sidelined in the debate about how does this play out in human sexuality, at first blush, right?
1: Right. I mean, if you think about it, and I mean, what I love about that answer is how it reframes it so that you actually have a broader vision of what repentance and faith looks like. I was I was talking with a couple of professors last year at a school on the west coast, a Christian school, and they 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 were talking about the difficulty that some of the students feel when they're engaging in, in conversations about morality and sexuality in particular today, because that's really the, the, the edge of where there's a lot of cultural conflict. One of the, the young women in, in the student ministry, I mean, knows the Bible, has grown up in the church, says, you know, I have a really hard time sharing the gospel with my, my, my friends who are uh, in the LGBT community, because if I share the gospel in this way, I'm asking them to give up their identity and of course the professors and i were saying well yes <laughs> but that's that's what jesus is requiring of all of us in one way or another i mean the whole point like if whoever would save his life must lose it whoever would lose his life will find it i mean the turning away from the identity that's defined solely by family relationships, or by wealth, or by anything other than what 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 Christ gives us. But it was fascinating to us in conversation to say somehow the the revolutionary, radical call of Jesus to trade in our identity for His has gotten missed, even by some of the top you know some of the the, the people that we're most excited about to have in a student ministry. Um, and so it just it it it, it it's. It's one of those reframing things that we have to say. But here's here's the the great thing about this, Bob. Like once you really grasp the revolutionary implications of repentance and faith, the way G- Jesus' call on someone's life, it's much more exciting. It's, I mean, the Christian faith really does then become an adventure. And that's what, and that's what I'm hoping to to get across through the book is for people to recognize, I mean, this is eternal stakes here. Like this is this is where the drama's at. This isn't some boring addition to your life, put Jesus in your pocket kind of a, this is a, this is a love relationship that will change everything about the
0: trajectory of your life. We probably should have started by defining orthodoxy when we're talking about the thrill of orthodoxy. And, and for those who would think, well, orthodoxy is is everything I believe that's true about the Bible. Maybe they're a little tighter. So where are the boundaries of orthodoxy as you lay this out?
1: There are different ways that people use the word orthodoxy. And so different denominations might have like a little O orthodoxy, you know, for their own denominational boundaries. Uh, And I think we'd recognize that. But most, most of the time, particularly in evangelical circles, we would recognize that there are small O orthodox believers in other denominations who we may disagree with on, on particular issues. I knew when I was writing a book like this, I was going to have to define what I mean by orthodoxy pretty, pretty clearly and pretty closely up front. And so it didn't take long for me to land what Chuck Colson would describe in his book, The Faith, as the faith, the Trinitarian core of the faith, uh, what uh, the theologian Thomas Oden would call classic Christianity or consensual the Christianity, the consensus of Christianity, what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity or Chesterton would call orthodoxy. And that is, what is that bedrock, Trinitarian core foundational beliefs that all Christians everywhere have believed for all time? And for the most part, those are, that. that's what has been summed up and described as biblical teaching summed up though in the teaching of the three creeds that are agreed upon by all wings of the Christian Church, so the uh, Apostles Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed uh, those that, that for for thousand, for more than a thousand years now, the church has looked at those three statements of faith and said, "This is a really good summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, and so we go back to those as the the bedrock or the the superstructure you can call it the blueprint the uh I use all these different metaphors in the in, in in the book, the 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 castle, the scaffolding, whatever it might be, but the those creeds are really the essentials. Now, how different denominations color in the and fill in the rest of that blueprint that leads that would lead to what we often call confessions of faith. And different denominations have confessions. My own denomination has a statement of faith that uh, colors in a lot and with a lot more detail uh, what what we believe to be you know orthodox for our our, our particular uh, tradition. But um, I, I think that going back to the bedrock for me was important because what I wanted to say here was, you know, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of debate right now, a lot of division in the church, a lot of things that we may be getting things wrong here and there, our posture, how we're to relate, public theology, all those are important questions. But regardless of what we may be getting right or wrong in our individual denominations or in how we relate to politics or, you know, the stances we take on any number of issues, this. Is bedrock. Like I like I can plant my flag here because this the, like the if this is a tree, these are the roots. And these roots go really deep. And I can have confidence that where I'm planting my flag on these particular truths, that where Christians for more than a thousand years have been saying this is what we believe, I can be confident that a hundred years from now, if the Lord doesn't return before then. Christians are going to be planting their flag in the same place.
0: And yet, with that said, if you go to a church website and they say, our doctrinal statement is the Apostles' Creed, don't you find yourself going, that's a little thin. You've 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 just put the scaffolding up, but we need a little more sheetrock to be able to understand who you are and to fill in. I mean, I find myself when I read the Apostles' Creed going, why didn't you say something about the atonement in here? Why didn't you talk about how a man is made right with God? That's an essential in all of this that's left out of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, right?
1: Kind of, but not exactly, I would say. See, see I don't take the creeds as—I um, get what you're saying about the church website. I agree. You're going to have to be a little more—you're going to have to be thicker in this day and age than simply just saying, we just affirm the Apostles' Creed because of— uh, Right now, in particular, there are people that are appealing to the creeds in order to to say they're orthodox, while actually denying aspects of moral orthodoxy that the church has never been divided upon. So, I I, I agree. I think you got to we have to be thicker. And I'm I would actually feel better attending a church that's going to have a thicker confession of faith built on that creed than I would. Than I would just someone who says that the, the creed is all that's there, but um I no I actually think you, you've got you've got quite a bit of atonement theology and like the Nicene creed for example for us and for our salvation, um uh, Jesus came and when we talk about him being crucified uh, for our sins, I think there's a you have uh, uh incorporation elements of the atonement, you've got substitution elements of the atonement, you've got um uh the 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 victory over Satan, sin and death uh that's implied in these different lines of of the creed
0: not not as clear as as what it says about very god of very god you know begotten not made i mean they were dealing with a different controversy in their day and so they take more pains to to flesh that out right
1: Yes, I would say that. And I would also, I'd say that the, the creeds are really focused on who God is and what he has done. The confessions fill in the details about exactly how that relates to us. I think the confessions build on the creeds in a way that they would say, um, we're going, we're going into greater detail here, but, but it's, but, but it's there implied in the creeds themselves. I, I've even made, made the case, you know, people say, well, you know, Trevin, you take an orthodox position, you're, 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 you're raising the, your view of marriage and sexuality to the level of orthodoxy, you know, and things like that, And to which I would say, no, I'm actually recognizing that anthropology, our understanding of humanity, is implied even in the very first lines of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That implies already the goodness of creation, what it means to be made male and female, what, what, like the that what it means to be embodied? It goes against Gnosticism. It's talking about the, the, I mean, from there you get very quickly to the orientation even of our embodied nature and and the two halves of humanity coming together to fulfill the very first thing that God told humans to do, which was to be fruitful and to multiply the earth, uh, to 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 be fruitful and multiply in the earth, so that image bearers of God are are everywhere, giving praise and glory to Him. So I would just I, I would say I'm not raising marriage and sexuality to the level of the creeds, I'm recognizing the anthropological implications in the creed themse- itself. And then also saying, if the church has se- has agreed upon this up until the last couple of decades, then I, I think the burden of proof is on those who would depart from the tradition in this standpoint, not the the ones who would say, no, That's that's part of the core of uh, of orthodoxy that's implied in the bedrock
0: this is where gavin ortland's work on finding the right hill to die on i think is very helpful for us to say how can we how can we say this is essential well we can say it's essential because not only do the scriptures speak clearly to it but tradition has has spoken into it there's a lot of weight around this and to go against that is pretty revolutionary and we've got to acknowledge the revolutionary nature of that who do you hope will read and benefit. Is this a book for pastors? Is it for small groups to go through? Is it for the individual Christian? Who's going to get the most out of the thrill of orthodoxy?
1: I think thoughtful Christians who may need to be reminded of why the good news is so good, um, I think we'll get a lot out of this. I hope pastors find new ways, uh, the pastors that work through this, find fresh ways of expressing old truths. I really hope that's the case. I I want pastors who work through this to... To, to see things that they already are familiar with in a new light, so that it, it comes out, it freshens their their preaching and teaching. I have heard of some small groups that are that are working through it as well, being challenged by it. That are um, uh, that are are you know wanting to recapture a sense of of wonder at the 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 foundational uh, truths of of the Christian Church. But mostly, Bob, my my heart for the book is. I mean, we're, we live in very unsettling times right now. There's a lot that seems to be up in the air. There's a lot of division in the church. Um, to me, this is the, this is the time when, when everything seems to be, the world seems to be shaking. The cultural winds are blowing as strong as they are. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of unsettledness about not necessarily what Christianity is taught, but whether or not Christianity is good. It's in that kind of environment that for me, I just think the best place to go is to, to okay then let's let's be reminded of these eternal ancient truths where we can take the stand and we can we can be rooted down the roots can go really deep um we, just i i i i was talking to a friend of mine a few years ago where i said you know when everything seems to be up in the air what do you need to do in the church go go back to the basics go back to those things where there isn't a ton of division because you're actually looking at those things that have united across the the core and like reestablish yourself there at the center of everything and then move your move back out it's just so easy to get confused and disoriented when you're on sort of the 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 edges of of where where Christians have can have a lot of debate and disagreement i want to pull us back to the core so that then we set, we, we we we're able to to engage with confidence uh to engage with um with perspective um, as to as to what is essential to Christianity, um, and hopefully our engagement will be healthier
0: afterwards. Two questions before we wrap up: the first is, what are you thinking on writing on? What's coming next from you?
1: Well, right now I've uh, um, I, it's not so much a writing project as it's been. Um, I, I've I've been involved with a with a podcast. Um, I'm finishing up actually the 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 final episodes for a season. We've done twelve episodes, and you know you think of a season and 12 episodes in a podcast but it's because it's more of a documentary style um but it's called reconstructing faith reconstructing faith and it's 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 really about the credibility crisis facing the church and i'm trying to bring perspective to those issues uh by by connecting listeners to the global church so the church around the world and the historic church the church throughout history so in a sense it's 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 related to what i'm doing with thrill of orthodoxy is that i want I want people to to be able to recognize um, that there's there's a lot of of beauty and there's a lot of wisdom in in really being able to to interpret the current moment uh, with the right with the right tools. I, I'm using the example. Uh, imagine a house after a flood. You know, the after a flood, mold and rot and moisture seeps up into the walls and whatnot. And you pretty much have to. You got to take a house, you got to take it down to the studs, and and in order, you got to get some of that moldy furniture out and whatnot. What I'm saying is, in, in the house of the Lord, I think it's been very clear in the past 20 to 30 years, there's been the revelation of a lot of rot. And I think conservative types, because they want to protect the institution, can sometimes wind up defending rot. Progressive types who want to purge the institution can wind up blowing up foundational pillars so that the house collapses. The whole thing's just kind of blown up. And what I, what I think the task of our generation with the task of the church in the next 20, 30, 40 years is going to be is we're going to have to recognize the need to remove the rot and fortify the foundations at the same time. And the only way we can do that is if we can differentiate what's rot from what's foundational. And that's where we need, you know, with our scriptures open before us with the, the, the the global church around us and the ancient church behind us, we need that wisdom in order to have that kind of perspective so that we, we don't do more damage to the church uh, or that we don't defend the indefensible. And that's I think that's going to be the task of our of our day. And we th- this podcast, I hope, will help Christians um in that in that in that work,
0: and we will have a link to the podcast in the show notes along with the link to information about your book and other things we've talked about here. My last question, you pray the Lord's prayer three times a day
1: i do it's actually part of me working through uh the the psalms in a month i i I have a particular way of praying uh, a prayer journey that I take where i I'm working through all the psalms in a month, and as part of that, there's a daily a midday and a uh, a morning, a midday and an evening reading. Uh, and it's actually a little book. It's called Psalms in 30 days. So I feel like we're talking about multiple projects, but, um, but, but the Lord's prayer is part of that. And um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that there's any other part of scripture that I go to more often, more regularly that I feel like the gospel is most summed up in, than in those words that Jesus himself gave
0: us. How long have you been practicing that discipline?
1: Doing the the Psalms and and with that, it's, I've been off on. I mean, there've been uh, different months where I've done different things, but for the most part, since August of 2019, and, um, it was really during the pandemic when it really became solidified for me as, yeah, I'm, I think I'll pray this way the rest of my life, Lord willing. Um, so yeah, w- but that, that sort of journey through, through, through a, a guide like that, um, has been, has been deeply influential and meaningful to me. I'm, at, I'm actually working on now the life of Jesus in 30 days. It follows the same structure of prayer, but takes you through the, the gospel. So I can alternate, you know, one month of the Psalms, one month of life of Jesus and whatnot.
0: Again, all of this in the show notes that we, we have to do this regularly just because you're, you're a valuable resource. We're grateful for that. And thanks for the time and the conversation today. Bob, thank you for
1: having me. Always a delight to talk to you.
0: Next time on The Bounce, we're going to have a conversation with Colin Hansen about his new biography of Tim Keller. We're going to focus in on Tim as a church planter, both as one who who became a church planter himself and as somebody who has fueled church planting all around the world through the Redeemer City to City Network. I hope you will be back and join us next time on The Bounce.